And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Ken Goodsword, best-selling author and independent researcher whose interests include archaeology, thaumaturgy, hermeneutics, and more. He writes in a variety of genres, including nonfiction, science fiction, dark comedy, and poetry. Today, we'll be discussing his book, UFOs in the Bible. Ken, thank you for joining me and welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, really looking forward to it. Me too. Now, how did you get interested in UFOs being in the Bible in the first place? Well, I guess I guess I'll have to blame uh, George Yotes, uh, Sukalos, and and his his crew there. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a a big um, ancient aliens addict, and uh, I've read uh, you know I read quite a few of the books that they talk about on there. Um, um, you know, chariots of the gods and, uh, some, of, some of the stuff, uh, by David Hatcher Childress and, and those, uh, those guys. And, um, so a lot of times they'll be, they'll refer kind of, uh, um, almost in a slanting way. Like it's, they don't really talk about it, but they, uh, sort of almost talk about a few of the biblical, um, stories. And basically it's assumed that there, there is a UFO connection there. Um, and a lot of times they they will try to explain it a little bit, um, but I mean honestly, it's hard to explain. So when I first um, kind of saw those connections, um, it was fascinating to me because um, I I was um, raised as a Christian and uh, very much um, very very involved in the church, um, and that was not something that we ever talked about there like you know so they don't tell you about ufos in sunday school um so i thought that that well this is a interesting discrepancy and um i mean there's lots of interesting discrepancies in the bible and they're not all ufo related but uh this was uh one thing that kind of um i decided to just kind of look into it and follow up and figure it out on my own and as I did so, it just kept on getting weirder and weirder. And I really went down a rabbit hole. So where most of the authors are talking about, um, you know, maybe one or two events, you've, you've always got Ezekiel. A lot of times there's going to be Enoch. Um, nobody's really talking about uh, Moses, who's like really kind of the main character of the Old Testament, like half the book um half the old testament revolves around the story of moses and the exodus and the books of uh you know exodus numbers deuteronomy leviticus that's all the huge story about the the israelites journey um out of egypt and eventually winding up in canaan now the interesting part about it is that um during those 40 years of wandering around in the desert they were following uh, an object that was flying um, that was, a. they described it as a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke at in the day. And to me, that seemed very strange. And then when you look at the, um, the other, uh, the, the other parts of the story of Moses, 
um, it just continues to get more and more strange. And there's more and more um, descriptions of physical objects uh, that are flying, uh, that are metallic, and usually that involve fire. And lots of times there's a lot of loud noises um, and various uh, safety precautions that they had to take uh, when coming near to these objects. And so um, I like... I basically read the the book of Exodus, uh, like cover to cover, um, word word by word, and reach had to retranslate a lot of the Hebrew words um, in there to figure out what was going on because the the translations that we have, um, they're all based on uh, like essentially based on the King James version. I mean, they're all they're all a little bit different, but nobody's really going. Uh, taking the story a different way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I kind of started, you know, wondering and asking, well, what are they actually talking about? Um, it doesn't sound like uh, the concept that of God that we, that we talk about on Sunday. Like, uh, you know, we see God as being a spiritual being um, and he's good and kind and love. Uh, but that doesn't really hold up to the story in terms of the way Moses describes it. Um, and a, a lot of people actually um, who are talking about this, I mean, I'm not the only one um, taking this kind of a approach. Um, there's several, I've, I've actually gotten to meet a lot of other authors uh, in the last couple of years who have done similar research. And a lot of them are kind of... Um, jumping onto the the fact that well the god in the old testament is actually kind of a dick and he's not nice at all um so i i'm not necessarily trying to trying to say that um and in fact i think that some of some of the way that i'm interpreting uh some of these events as being uh relating to ufo's um actually make yahweh more of a nice guy again because it almost sounds in some of the cases um sounds like there was some kind of radiation leakage or you know it, there's this case where everybody gets sick and um Yahweh kills a whole bunch of them mm-hmm. um which you know is usually cited as proof that he's some kind of evil overlord um but i have to wonder if it was um such extreme radiation poisoning that it was more of a mercy killing. And um, when, when it wasn't actually Yahweh, they killed him. It was just, he told Moses to tell his guys to go around and kill everybody, which they did. Um, and it seems maybe like it was more of like a medically assisted suicide uh, because of the severe pain, painful nature of these radiation burns. What I find fascinating is that you mentioned that they were falling around a pillar of fire and it was smoke during the day. Mm-hmm. And I believe that we see things like that in the Bible and we just don't think anything about it. We just <clears throat> yeah. accept that that's what it was and move on. We don't, you know, that's right. question it. Why do you think we do that? Well, I think when it comes to anything having to do with the Bible, it's intricately wrapped up with what we believe. And um we're we're basically told what to believe. Um, even though I think there's a lot of uh, 
there's a lot of lip service, I guess, in terms of um, church leadership wants you to read the Bible for yourself and, and come to your own conclusions. And they'll say that, they'll say that a lot. Um, but it's not really true because if you do have questions, um, that's fine. You're allowed to ask the questions as long as you bring them back to your pastor and he'll tell you the right way to, uh, to understand that. Right. So there's this, uh, kind of, um, kind of an illusion of open-mindedness, uh, but you can't really take it to a, a logical conclusion. Um, and I started getting into trouble with that, uh, which is, I guess, one of the reasons why I'm, I no longer attend church. Um, but there's, there's just a lot of um, very interesting uh, discrepancies, I guess. Is it true that in the Bible there are some words that do not have a translation? Yes. Can you tell us about uh, there, some of those? <clears throat> absolutely. I actually have an appendix specifically about that, uh, which I didn't print out. But um, so there's a bunch of words which only appear in the Bible um, maybe once. Uh, those There's actually a specific uh, term for that that theologians use. Uh, which is a Latin phrase called hapax legomena. And what it means is basically this is the only, this word only occurs once. Um, mm. That's la a Latin phrase. So, uh, but beyond that, there's words that occur um, maybe a handful of times, maybe five or six or 10 times, um, but they're always occurring in the same way. So like, for example, um, Seraphim is a good example of that. Now, we the word seraphim is is classically understood as a type of angel, um, maybe like an archangel type of a thing. The problem with that is that the Bible doesn't actually have angels. Angel is not a word that's in the Bible um, until you get to the New Testament, because the New Testament is written in Greek. So, but then the the term for angel is basically borrowing a Greek word from the Greek culture um, and then overlaying it onto this new Christian culture, which doesn't really have a, any kind of conceptual framework for it. It's not, uh, it's not a Jewish um, concept. Uh, so it gets really muddled. So in the Old Testament, they, um, the closest thing to an angel is the um, Malachim, which again has this I am ending. Oh, I guess we haven't talked about the Elohim yet, but we will. So, so um, anytime in the Old Testament, when you find a Hebrew word that ends in I am, uh, it means the people of, or the people who, or these people or whatever. So basically it's plural and it generally refers to an intelligent being. Uh, sometimes it's an animal, um, but most of the time it's human or better. So it's, it can it can identify where you're from, or uh, it can identify your career choice. So, like, type of thing as like Americans or blacksmiths, right? So it, um, that works for the em suffix, mm -hmm. uh, as does what different species apparently, uh, because you now have the cherubim, the seraphim, the Elohim, and so the Elohim is 
um, is one of the most used words in in the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, and the root word uh, El for Elohim is also just an, an ordinary word in Hebrew. So sometimes you they talk about the, the, the people of El, uh, and sometimes they just use the word El. And every time they do that, in just kind of a mundane concept, um, context, the word L means to, as in, I'm going to your house, or we came to earth. So the Elohim are the people who came to, it doesn't tell us where they came from, uh, but why then are we translating Elohim as God, and specifically a single monotheistic God who has supreme powers, when that's doesn't really jive with with what the Elohim are described as doing in in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in the book of Genesis. Do you think that the Old Testament is distinguishing between God and then the Elohim who created the planet? Like there's still, I guess, the Old Testament calls God Yahweh, and that God is still higher than the Elohim. I think it's actually the opposite way. Um, I think that, and, and I'm I haven't really gotten into this in my current my current books yet, uh, but it's it's coming for a future released book, uh, which is going to be um, kind of my uh, I guess my magnum opus, and <laughs> it's going to take me a while to to get that one ready. But um, essentially, yeah, I can jump the gun a little bit, and without any proof right now. Um, it looks, uh, it's starting to look to me um, like the Elohim were a group of individuals who came from some other planet, uh, came to Earth, did not create Earth, um, but did some kind of um, political political um, manipulation, or maybe it was a punishment uh, on them. It's either they were exiled to Earth or they um, uh, basically came to Earth as um, immigrants, uh, which uh, I think is the immigration theory is the way I'm leaning right now because uh, that lines up very closely with the, um, the Sumerian stories that I'm also looking into. Um, and which I talk about in my book, the Enuma Elish. Um, so that tells the story of the Sumerian gods coming to Earth, um, and then they proceed to do a bunch of a bunch of things that are very similar to some of the things that the Book of Genesis talks about. So I think that the the Elohim are essentially the same people as as what are called the Anunnaki in the Sumerian texts, um, and then basically. Uh, they kind of set up some rules and kind of some jurisdiction. And then um, they, they either took off or they, uh, they are still here and they became us perhaps, um, or like evolutionarily speaking, we don't know where, which ones we came from or, or which ones, you know, were somebody previous. Uh, but the, in the book of Genesis, they talk about the Nephilim, um, and so there's this intermixing of the Elohim and uh, some other species, and uh, and then the the Nephilim are formed. And the Nephilim doesn't mean giants, 
Um, I'll just only say that much about it. But um, the it's also very clear that uh, the Nephilim uh, might be us, or they might be somebody previous to us. Um, but what is clear in that verse is it says these. It refers to another group of people called the the um, the mighty men of old, the heroes of old, and the, they're called the Gibbelim. And so these heroes of old, which are the famous men, so the the Shemim. Um, but the weird thing is, uh, this is only five, or this is only in Je Genesis chapter six. So there's only been five chapters so far, and the first four chapters we're talking about. Um, what we typically think of as a creation story, but is actually uh, several separate creation myths, um, and then the the story about the about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and their family, and then basically we get right into, hey, remember these mighty men of old? And we're like, no, what? Like, who are you talking about? Well, I think that they are referring to. Um, other mythologies that we that are no longer part of the Hebrew and the Christian traditions, uh, but very well might be the Sumerian myths. So they might actually just be talking about the Anunnaki and perhaps even uh, some of the the famous named um, uh, gods of Sumer, such as Enki and Enlil and Marduk. Well, to get back to the words that don't have translation. Do you think yeah. those are possibly Sumerian or even extraterrestrial words? I don't know enough about Sumerian linguistics to answer that. Um, however, I I do know a couple of things about Sumerian linguistics. And um, just from that very limited glimpse, uh, there doesn't seem to be um, strong correlation between uh, the between those the languages of Sumer, Akkadia, Babylon, um, and the Hebrew. Although um, I'm I'm kind of lying when I say that because there is definitely some correlation. So, for example, uh, Zechariah Sitchin talks a lot about the the word Shem, which he translates as rockets. Um, so uh, basically, um, in the Bible, there's there's a group called the Shemim, uh, and they they come into play right away in the first ver uh, first verse of Genesis, Genesis one one. Um, you have the Elohim and the Shemim mentioned, um, and so it is interesting that uh, in 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 terms of uh, Sitchin lore, the Shemim would be the Rocket Men. Um, which is an interesting um, way to look at it. Uh, and I kind of tried that interpretation and it basically works. Like it, it doesn't, the story doesn't fall apart if you assume that Shemim are the rocket men. Um, but I actually think that because of the, the root word Shem um, in the Hebrew, uh, if you look at the, the places where the word Shem is used and it is used a lot, um, Shem generally means name, uh, but that's sort of like a literal, um, I, I guess, a figurative way of looking at it, because what it really means is um, like famous or, or even um, infamous. So and I actually think that, the, that it's linguistically has survived through the 
Indo Proto Indo European uh, into the European languages and into English as the word shame. So shem shame, it's almost the same word uh, linguistically, and the semantically they're they're very similar in terms of what they mean, uh, although we have in recent times, uh, we've really shifted shame to only mean uh, being famous for a bad thing, whereas in the original usage, usage of Shem, uh, it was used for both. Uh, you were famous, whether or not it was for a bad thing or for a good good thing, and there was examples of both of those. <clears throat> oh. So yeah, that's that's one kind of interesting example about how you know you just have to look at how the root word is used in the rest of the bible and i i guess before the show i i had uh, mentioned um strong's concordance and um that that has been a invaluable tool for me in that uh basically what it is is it's a a, a database that's a hundred years old at least uh, because it used it was invented on in paper form and now it exists electronically, uh, but you can compare the meaning and the context of uh, any word in the Bible, and um, you can also see exactly every single time it's used. So there's some words that are in the Bible that are used like two thousand times, um, and then there's a lot of words that are used like ten times, and so those those are the ones that I find interesting because. Um, that's where you have things like um, cherubim, for example. So the cherubim pops up a couple of dozen times, um, but uh, mostly in the book of Exodus, um, and where essentially you can consider that one usage uh, because it's one author telling one story and mentioning this this particular object. Um, and... Uh, and then it, it pops up in the book of Genesis right after the uh, the Garden of Eden story where this cherubim um, was essentially seems like some kind of robot. To it was like a guardian robot and it had a flaming sword um, and it was set there to prevent Adam and Eve from re-entering the garden after they're kicked out. Then uh, the, the cherubim shows up again in... Uh, in, in the Moses story, and Moses mentions the cherubim many times. Um, and basically, again, you have this fire motif, um, but also the cherubim are, are coming down from the sky. Um, now, so, so there's this association with the whole um, stories of, of all the stories of Moses where uh, things are coming down from the sky, landing on top of Mount Sinai. Uh, now they're following things around in the desert for 40 years that are flying in the sky. Um, then the cherubim, um, uh, basically, you don't you don't see them anymore, except that um, Moses is told to make cherubim uh, for the tabernacle and later on to become the, ten the temple under Solomon. Uh, the only problem with that theory is that um, Yahweh would not tell... Um, uh, Moses to make uh, an image of cherubim, like we think of it as a decoration, like he's supposed to make a decoration that looks like an angel. Well, Yahweh just finished telling uh, Moses the Ten Commandments, like literally on the same page, 
Um, and the Ten Commandments says, uh, I am a jealous God, you shall not worship anything else. And also, do not make any images of anything in the heavens or, in, or on earth. So if, he were, if Yahweh literally just said those two commandments and then turned around the same day and said, oh, by the way, I want you to make uh, a bunch of sculptures for me, like, uh, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I, in the book, I, you know, it's kind of complicated to talk about here, but in the book, I wrestle through a lot of, like, trying to interpret how, how that can make any sense. Um, and essentially what I come down to is that, uh, these, these cherubim are not actually, um, an image or a figure or a statue. They're actually something like some kind of machine, uh, that, uh, Moses has been given blueprints and Mo Moses had a guy, had a guy whose one job was to make this stuff, just the cherubim stuff, not any of the other stuff. They had weavers, they had woodworkers they had all of these other guys um they had this one guy who was specially trained to just work on this cherubim project and in order to do that he had to go up on mount sinai and stay there for 40 days to learn the protocols the programming languages whatever they were doing up there um the the elohim were teaching this this one man how to uh, how to implement cherubim on earth hmm, like uh, it's crazy then the cherubim later show up in guess what the ezekiel story then they also show uh, appear to um uh, one of the other prophets and so it's and in both of those cases again there's like these uh, very flying saucer-ish kind of descriptions um, and there's always metal. It's always like burning bronze. Uh, it's always coming down from the sky and talking to these guys. In your book, UFOs in the Bible, you talk about how you organized it to the Hynek scale. Right. Can you tell my audience what that scale is and why you did that? Sure. So you guys will probably recognize um, Hynek. Um, I well, I can't think of his first name at the moment. Gary, maybe? Uh, what is it? I don't remember his name either. I can't remember his first name. Um, but uh, this guy, Heineck, was the guy in charge of Project Blue Book. So the after the Roswell incident in New Mexico, um, of course, somebody uh, wasn't aware that they weren't allowed to talk about it. And they blew the lid wide open. And so now the cat's out of the bag and uh, the government has to do something about it. So what they do is um, they set up a program to investigate. So don't worry, we'll investigate. Yeah, kind of like how uh, if you find a giant skeleton, you should just send it to the Smithsonian. Um, so, <laughs> so the government's doing this and they go through a couple of different iterations of the project, uh, which didn't really uh, get off the ground too well. Um, the, the first one was called, um, project, uh, um, oh, what was the first one? The second one was called project grudge, which is already an interesting twist because somebody has got a grudge that, that they're now having to suppress this, uh, because the first iteration 
had a more open sounding name. It was like uh, Project Disclosure or something. Not exactly, right? But almost that that way. Uh, I wish I could remember the name of it. But um, so so by the third iteration is is when they now bring Heineck on board, and he is a professor. Um, and uh, I think a physicist, but like basically he's a smart guy and he knows a lot of stuff. And so they figure uh, we'll get him to do this. He'll be the face of the project. Um, and they thought that they could uh, basically um, give him a, pr a pretty long leash, but also really be able to reel him in when they needed to. And they did definitely need to. Um, uh, but at any rate, um, Heineck was publicly uh, put out there and was like, hey, this is the guy. He's going to investigate everything very thoroughly. You know, he's a he's a professor. He knows what he's doing. Um, and he did. He, he was very good with the research methodology. And so one of the first things he did was um, basically recognizing that the UFO phenomenon is very complex. And so he didn't want to just, you know, start writing down everything that everybody said. And there's, he must have interviewed thousands of witnesses. I mean, the, well, actually, I do know the number was somewhere in the, in the ballpark of um, uh, 10,000 or 50,000, somewhere in that range. I can't remember, but there was a paper released by the FBI saying that, um, uh, shortly after the the first round of interviews, they had to basically get a big shredder uh, because they just didn't have room to store all these documents. So, so the FBI is is admitted has admitted to shredding UFO evidence even from the the get go. Um, this was like the first two years of the of the project. Um, anyway, so Heineck wants to get this thing organized a little bit better. So what he does is he he's interested in kind of categorizing what are the types of things that you saw. Okay, so like, hey man, I saw a UFO. Okay, well, what what type of a of an encounter was it? So firstly, he's only interested in close encounters. So so what he did was uh, there's close encounters and there's not so close or far and far encounters or lights in the sky. So, you know, the bulk of the time, uh, if you're on a, on the MUFON Facebook page or, you know, UFOs over Canada or whatever page you're on, um, there's, there's tons of people who are, you know, every day are saying, Hey, look at this cool thing. I saw it must be a UFO. Okay. But most of the time um, it's a light. Is it a star? Is it an airplane? I don't know. I can't tell. It's a light. It's a dot, right? We have very little information. Um, unless it's moving erratically, then it gets interesting. But a lot of times it's not. It might just be sitting there or just flying in a you know, normal kind of airplane looking pattern. Um, so Heineck wasn't really interested in those because there's there's not a lot you can do with it. So what he said was, we are going to focus on encounters of objects or crafts or um, entities that have come within 500 feet of the observer, which is a pretty high bar, right? So, and he still managed to get thousands and thousands of records building up. Um, so, 
So what he did was anything under 500 feet, now we're interested and we're going to make a file of it. But we still want to classify it further. So there's going to be type one, uh, or he call it the first kind. So he called it um, the first kind, the second kind, third kind, fourth kind. So, so this is where we get the name of the movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So the third kind is where you actually uh, see or, um, or meet even um, an actual extraterrestrial entity. Uh, so backing up a scale, you get the second kind, which is where you see um, an object and some kind of physical evidence. So whether it be cattle mutilations plus a UFO, like not just the cattle mutilation, that's not really an, a UFO encounter. Um, but if there's, if there's a cattle mutilation or a crop circle or burnt grass, and somebody saw something flying, then that can, that's considered a, a, of the second kind. The, the first kind is like, I saw a thing, it was flying right over there, it was less than 500 feet away. So, so basically, as you get a, a higher kind, you have more strangeness and more detail in terms of, so, so what I did was the, um, I, I wanted to kind of set the stage in terms of looking at these less detailed um, kind of encounters in the Bible first before I got into the weird stuff. Um, one of the reasons I did that was because I wasn't convinced by any means that UFOs were real, um, for one thing, and that uh, the biblical writers had seen a UFO. So I was coming from a pretty skeptical stance and going, yeah, you know, it's it's very it's all well and fine for von Daniken to say that Ezekiel saw a UFO, but what's his evidence? And so now the Ezekiel story comes a lot later because it's the at least third kind, right? Um, but so I didn't want to jump into that. I kind of wanted to see if there was any kind of framework for even a simple UFO encounter in the Bible. Uh, so I looked at the first kind first. Actually, the first one I looked at wasn't even a, a close encounter, um, but it was a, an important enough part of the story that I included it anyways, uh, because it's the, the Star of Bethlehem, which is a really interesting story. Uh, and so I go into quite a bit of analysis detailed in terms of how that how that object moved across the sky um it was definitely not an airplane although if anyone had seen it today that would be what it would be classified as uh but of course they didn't have airplanes or satellites then um so a lot of theologians have uh essentially um surmised that well it had to have been a comet Okay. Yeah, sure. Maybe it was a comet. Don't people also think currently that the star Bethlehem was like overlapping planets or overlapping stars that made it brighter than usual? Sure. And there's a lot of things that it could be um, in terms of that kind of an astronomical uh, explanation, except none of those actually add up when you look at the movement of this, of this object, uh, because it came from the east. Um, and these these wise men 
um, we're able to follow it. So from quite far away. So we don't know where that exactly was, but it was at least hundreds of miles, possibly thousands of miles. And so um, were they following it in one night? No. Were they following it in a week? Maybe, maybe a month. Um, in any in any rate, they saw an object that was stationary enough that they could follow it for an extended period, uh, but also mobile enough that they could follow where it was leading them to. Now, you can also interpret that, well, they, it doesn't necessarily have to move. It maybe just appeared in a certain spot in the sky and they walked towards it. Okay, that's possible too. Except that um, it, A, it, there's, there's two problems with that. The first one is uh, they followed it to a certain um, area and then they had to stop and ask for directions. So remember the wise men went and talked to King Herod and they said, hey, where's this new king of the Jews who was born? Well, of course, King Herod didn't like that. And so that's a whole other side quest story. Um, but they they had to stop to ask uh, where they needed to go. And, um, and so once they were sort of pointed in the right direction, well, were they even? Uh, that part of the story is a little bit unclear. But then later whether it's a few days later or a week later we're not sure um but now the star has has brought them to bethlehem uh, which is a very small village um and not only to bethlehem but somehow it leads them to the exact house uh, or possibly manger uh in the in the stable which is actually not necessarily true either um but somehow Whatever this location was, the uh, this object um, has led these guys to a very very specific location, which is impossible to do if they're following something that is cosmic in nature or uh, orbiting or any of those kinds of explanations, and certainly not for a comet because comets do not suddenly stop uh, unless they impact the Earth. So. If they happened to be following it in an impacted and they were able to find the impact spot, maybe that could work. Uh, but there's no um, there's nothing in the story about any kind of, um, you know, landing, which is which is weird because in all the other stories of UFOs in the Bible, the, the, the story is very clear that an object came down and landed and usually, you know, somebody got out and talked to them or something. This is the only story uh, where nothing lands. So, like, it's just not adding up. However, now look at the shepherd's perspective. Remember, the shepherds were abiding in the fields, watching their flocks by night. And they, they said that the, the way they described it was um, they saw suddenly in the sky, they saw a brilliant light. Um, and there were there they describe clouds and the sounds of angels voices so something loud and um i don't know what an angel voice sounds like but it, it probably doesn't sound like oh i mean but maybe it does if it's like a high-pitched whine right so were they seeing some kind of machinery um it's not 
super clear, but the it seems like the shepherds had a better view than the wise men uh, or anyone else in the story, including Jesus and Mary and Joseph. Uh, the shepherds might the shepherd's point of view might be considered a close encounter, um, but it's probably it, it would be a close encounter of the first kind. So even though the star for most of the story is more than 500 feet away, uh, when you when you consider the shepherd's experience, they saw something. Yeah, that makes sense. What about an example of a close encounter of the second kind? Can you give sure. us one? Yes, I can. So um, one of the one of the most well known ones of that is um, of Jacob. Um, so Jacob actually had several uh, UFO encounters. Um, a couple, his first two were a couple days apart, or possibly one day apart. Um, he was on his way to go visit his brother uh, Esau, and um, he had his basically he was a nomad a nomad at this time so it was him and his family and a whole bunch of um well not it's not clear if they were servants necessarily but essentially he was like um almost like a bedouin sheik where he had this whole like hundreds of people that were with him and he was like their leader for whatever reason um and they all had you know sheep and cows and all that stuff so there's this huge crowd and they're they're traveling through the wilderness. Of course, Israel is a pretty barren place. Um, so when you're traveling with sheep and a lot of mouths to feed, uh, you kind of have to take your time. And it's not like, oh, hey, look at there's green pastures everywhere. So you're a bit limited as to where you can go. On their way, uh, they're they're traveling through this one area that's um, close to a river. Uh, on one side of the river, there's there's hills on both sides of the river. And Jacob's on one side of the river, Jacob and all his people. And he looks across the river and he sees what he calls um, an encampment of the Malachim. Now, the Malachim, again, we have another I am word and it's a plural. And it's these guys, Malach means message. So these are the messengers. So he knows who these guys are. He, he recognizes them from however he knows, I'm not sure. Uh, but obviously it was something that was already in the zeitgeist or the motif of, of the culture. And so he was able to identify, hey, look, there's a, there's a whole crew of Malachim over there. Um, and uh, basically they seem to just be camped out. So he, he named that place um two camps and that's specifically uh, noted in the bible this place is named two camps and that place is probably still named that today um then he goes um uh okay i'm getting a little bit foggy on the chronology it might be the next night or it might be later that same like uh, the night of that day uh this is where he now has uh, a closer encounter so he was seeing these guys across the river um it's i want to be clear that these guys were not human um and that's that's made pretty clear in some of the other uh hebrew words that are, are that are used in this story um there's there's a word ish which is uh, uh essentially means like but not the same 
So sort of like how ish kind of still means that now ish, right? Like, you know, <laughs> ish, yeah. uh, but not quite. So, so he said, um, these, these guys are kind of human, but not quite. And they're over there. And, but we're, we're just doing our thing. So he basically didn't want to interact with them. They're kind of doing their own business. He's on his way to get to his brother's place. Uh, but he, at night, while, while he's asleep, one of these uh, Malachim comes and um, interrupts him. And so it's the way that this story is told in the Bible, it's a little bit, um, you can't really tell if he's dreaming or if this is really happening. Um, but uh, so essentially this, this being comes to him. He has a bit of a conversation with him and they end up wrestling, which is, this is hilarious. So like, okay, there's an ET. I'm going to suplex that guy. Like what? So, but anyway, the long and short of it is the reason this is a second kind uh, story is because Jacob um, was injured during the wrestling match and he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. Um, so that is the physical evidence that something happened there. I mean, he could have just been sleepwalking and sprained his ankle, but again, that heals too, right? Wouldn't you actually classify that as a third kind because he's wrestling to me, which suggests yeah. contact. Yeah, you're right. But the second kind ones, there weren't very many. So I threw that into second kind. Oh. <laughs> I didn't realize that the, there was contact. I thought all of his stuff was basically based on a dream. Well, that's the thing is that that is the way that, that 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 story is still taught in Sunday school. And this is something that we teach our children when they're five or six years old as let's learn the story of Jacob. And they do teach it in terms of a dream. Uh, but it's clearly not a dream hmm. because dreams don't leave marks. Um, however, yeah, there's most of the examples in the Bible are third encounter or third types. Um, so I was a little hard pressed to find enough to talk about, to fill out my second kind, uh, part. And that seemed like a good candidate. Is there anywhere in the Bible where there's like scorched earth due to a craft? Yes and no. Um, so there's definitely scorched earth, but not necessarily, uh, like that kind of scorched earth there. The scorched earth that we find in the Bible is where a craft comes through and kills everyone. Uh, so we're talking about, um, entire villages, uh, basically slaughtered, um, sometimes with what appear to be, um, well, it, it, there appear to be different mechanisms for or weaponry for used for doing this. Uh, sometimes it's there's slow death involved, and that's explicitly stated. Um, like, hey, you guys, don't worry, I'm going to go ahead of you. So this is uh, primarily when the Israelites are about to cross over the Jordan River into Canaan. Um, remember that thing that they were following around for forty years. When they get to the river. Uh, that thing changes its uh, MO 
And now, okay, you guys now know where you're going. So you don't have to follow me. I'm going to take off in front of you and don't come too close because I'm going to be spreading disease or possibly radiation. We don't know what it is, but it's basically says I'm going ahead of you and I will prepare the way to make your enemies weak so that when you do come in, they'll either already be dead or they'll be uh, sick and dying and you can just, you know, waltz your way in. So like really weird. In your book, it may be under the third kind classification, but you talk about the Merkaba and you talk about the Star of David. And I think yeah. you even imply that the Star of David and the Merkaba is basically the shape of a UFO. Is that correct? That is what I'm implying. Now, I, I can't prove it. Um, and so it is merely an implication. Um, but the, when you look at the way that, um, so, so this, the Merkaba, um, ties directly to the cherubim. Um, and that is because both of those words are used, um, to describe different aspects of the same encounters multiple times. Uh, so this happens in Ezekiel and this also happens, um, in the, the whole big long Moses story, although it's a little bit hard to pin down because that story is very drawn out. Um, but the, there's these strange motifs, uh, which bring up a lot of, um, other Hebrew words that fall into the hapax legomena theory or, um, sorry, the bucket, I guess. So you've got, um, you've got words, uh, um, which are generally translated as uh, face or uh, wings or eyes. Um, and they are used to paint an anthropomorphized picture of Ezekiel's um, kind of crazy narrative. Now, when, when Ezekiel wrote down what he saw, he had no idea what he was, what he was looking at. Uh, and so, he basically tells us what he saw um, later on. So because that happens in the first chapter of Ezekiel, later on in Ezekiel, he has he re-encounters the same object and he gets more information. Um, then again, this happens several times. So uh, by his third or fourth encounter, um, he's actually able to call things by their proper names because he hears the beings in the craft referring to certain things by name so by now he's he's sort of become aware of their their jargon their lingo and i don't know if they're talking hebrew or like maybe like you mentioned you know maybe they're talking some angelic or extraterrestrial language and he learns a couple of these words um but at any rate the there's all these strange technical terminology um, that because we don't know what he's talking about and the original translators of the King James Bible certainly had no conception of flying machines. Um, like they wouldn't interpret it that way because they've never seen a flying machine. Well, they might've, but I mean, I think the assumption is that, uh, they they were limited to um, 
you know, middle-aged technology. Uh, however, I mean, it's entirely possible that they did see a UFO, but in that case, they probably would have interpreted it differently. So they probably did. These guys are, you know, probably um, in a monastery in, in uh, Italy or someplace and, you know, working away diligently at the Lord's work and trying to translate the best they can with um, these, this, these very strange documents. And so uh, essentially, um, I kind of do a, 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 I take these words like the panim, uh, the, the authonym, um, the, there's these other words. And again, these have this I am ending, which is a plural ending, but it also generally is applied to intelligent beings. Um, however, in the case of Ezekiel's encounter, things get a little, start to get really weird. So why it, it sounds a lot like he's talking about um, some kind of machine and it's flying. Um, but also it seems to have some kind of um, attributes of an intelligent being. So is it a robot? Is it some kind of AI type of thing? Um, there's there's indication indications both in Ezekiel and in the Book of Daniel, as well as uh, a couple of different parts of the Moses narrative, um, where it seems like they they might be using some kind of uh, holographic projection type of like thing. Like it's there's like some parts where it's literally. Uh, looks just like Princess Leia leaning over, telling R2-D2, he's your only hope. You know, like, um, so when you read it with reading and trying to piece together all these words, you have to kind of turn them around and twist them around and see where where, where they start to make sense, um, which I kind of walk you through the process uh, in, in my book. Um, so I don't come to, I don't come to these words and say, oh, this is what it means. Instead, I go, mm, I don't know what this means, but I don't think it means what we think it means. And then what what could it possibly mean? So we kind of walk through the process together a lot. Is the word Merkaba in the Bible? Um, is the word Merkaba in the Bible? I do not remember. Um, but it certainly is. Uh, the word Merkaba is... Um, is very prominent in a Jewish sect um, that was quite popular in, I want to say, the third and second centuries BC. Um, and basically, they their whole big deal was that it's a that it, they interpreted it as a chariot, uh, which is interesting because a chariot is a, a transportation craft. Um, and they they call it the flying chariot. So the Merkaba is a flying chariot, according to Jewish tradition, um, that apparently Yahweh rides in. Um, this concept, although not the exact word, uh, appears many times throughout the Psalms, for one. So uh, in the book of Psalms, uh, David talks a lot about this flying chariot and he calls it the cherubim. Uh, so again, this is interesting because you've got these different views of this of 
certain things that are popping up with slightly different aspects. Um, so I'm I'm basically saying the cherubim is the Merkaba. Uh, the this chariot is a simple like a a metaphor, I guess, or you could say a simile, something. Um, you have to call it something. And if they didn't know what it was called, a chariot is just as good as any. It it does provide a lot of information because chariots are made out of metal. Chariots are shiny. Um, chariots uh, are carry people. And uh, although they don't typically fly, if you call it a flying chariot, now they do. So so you've got a flying metal object with that's shiny. And actually, chariots are kind of loud and noisy, too. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily think of that unless you've watched the movie Ben-Hur recently. Uh, but um, and they're also a uh, essentially a weapon. So uh, at the time, the chariot was the war tank. Right. Like that was the highest technology in terms of military technology that existed for hundreds, uh, possibly thousands of years. Um, David in the Psalms refers to Yahweh specifically riding on his chariot, uh, coming down from the sky and um, actually blasting his enemies uh, or at least scaring them away uh, with what seems to be some kind of laser beam. Um, and this this is a kind of a common motif in the Psalms. It comes comes up in at least three different Psalms. Um, so the 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 Merkaba, the the uh, the chariot, the cherubim, um, and also I believe that it has to do with um, some of the unnamed um, objects that Ezekiel first described, uh, because he's talking about these four faces and six wings. And so I'm thinking if you were to draw something that had four of one thing and six of another thing, there's a couple of ways you can draw this as a geometric figure. Uh, one way you could do it is as a, um, okay, I play D and D. So I'm looking at a, a D eight. Okay. So it's, it's got uh, basically, it's kind of like, two d4s um overlapping each other right like two pyramids yeah opposing um, pyramids and i wanted to ask you do they describe that shape of the two opposing pyramids anywhere well i think they do um but it's not it's not clear but i think that that is possibly what they mean um when when yahweh gives Moses the specific directions of how to build a cherubim. Here's some really very strange facts. Here, the cherubim have uh, have these have four wings, um, similar to the description that Ezekiel gave. Now, I think that there's some misinterpretation between wings and faces. I think that wings and faces are sort of uh, the same thing, kind of like how. You could describe a D6 as having six faces, but also how many edges does it have? There's more than six. Um, so what is it? Ten? I don't know. I don't know how to do how to figure out that math. But if you look at um, uh, a triangle, for example, has one, one face in the middle, but three edges, right? Mm -hmm. So all these 
um, geographic or geometric objects are built out of, if you build them out of, um, say, sheet steel, then you're going to be interested in how many faces they have. But if you're building them out of uh, steel rod, you're going to be interested in how many edges they have, and the faces are going to be blank. So I think that that kind of goes two ways of talking about the same thing, where which how many edges versus how many surfaces they have. And so I believe that uh, when we when we are interpreting these these things as having uh, four faces or six wings, I think that's one way of saying the same thing. Um, also, so after Yahweh gives Moses the blueprints, apparently, um, the he is told to build two cherubim, and they are supposed to be facing each other, and it describes the positions of their wings. So again, we have these same words, faces and wings, and uh, applied directly to the cherubim in this case, and indirectly through the stories of, um, of um, Ezekiel. Uh, and and it, it is indirect because the way that Ezekiel tells his story, uh, you can't tell what he's talking about unless you look at both of his encounters simultaneously uh, because the his language for them changes. Um, so, yeah, I think that the uh, whatever Moses and his highly trained you know, 40 days on top of Sinai uh, craftsmen, whatever they were building or programming had some kind of geometric uh, component to it. So I maybe it had something to do with like power generation, you know, free energy, all these kind of woo-woo things that a lot of people like to talk about. Um, they do seem crazy, but mm, there's a little bit of evidence to support that it could be something like along those those lines. According to close encounters of the fourth kind, that means that abductions are involved. Where right. are abductions in the Bible? Oh, they're all over the place. So um, the most obvious one is Enoch. Uh, and Enoch is a strange character because he literally shows up in uh, in the Bible in one verse his name is used precisely once. Um, however, he's also got a whole series of books about him, uh, but they're not generally considered canon, um, depending on which church tradition you grew up in. Sometimes they are. Uh, but even if they're not, um, the canonical gospels refer to Enoch uh, at least three different times. So in the book of Jude um, and a couple other places whose references I uh, am not remembering at the moment, uh, but Enoch seems to be um, something that, that was accepted uh, until it wasn't. Um, so it is, it is interesting, though, that, again, kind of like these heroes of old, uh, the book of Genesis goes, Oh yeah, yeah. You guys know the story about Enoch. Yeah, of course we do. Um, so it assumes that we do. Um, and and even then, what it says about Enoch in in just the very few words is Enoch walked with the Elohim, and he was he was not. This is the 
typical translation. I need to look into that one a little bit more, but um, I'm kind of okay with the way that we interpret it. Enoch walked with the Elohim and he was not for Yahweh took him. So what? Uh, so, I mean, okay, well, he, you know, was just taken to heaven. Okay, fine, except that heaven doesn't exist in the Bible. There's no mention of the type of um, conceptualization of heaven that we teach in church today, or hell for that matter. Um, those are not found in the Old Testament anywhere. Now, once you start to get into the New Testament, you get a little bit, uh, a little bit of that is coming in, um, but it certainly is not outlaid as there's nowhere in the Bible that says, hey, look, this is how, how heaven and hell work. Uh, you know, like it's not, it's just not like that. So, um, so basically Enoch is taken and that's all we know. In the book of Enoch though, he describes what that experience was like. Um, and it's pretty interesting. Um, I'm, I'm not yet an expert on the book of Enoch. I have only read it a couple times, um, probably not even the whole thing. But what I've gathered so far is uh, he, he went up into the sky uh, by the Ruach, which is another interesting word that pops up um, in the Old Testament, a lot of places. And we always translate it as the Spirit or like so the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, and it's usually like the, you know, the Holy Spirit we think is like one of the Trinity. Um, however, when it's used in the Old Testament, the Ruach is, has nothing to do with Yahweh and Jesus. It is the Ruach Elohim. So it is the object of the Elohim. It could be a craft. Um, it's not super clear. Uh, I lean towards the interpretation that the Ruach is a spaceship of some kind. Um, and it might be the same one as the cherubim and the Merkaba or it might be a different one. There does seem to be different types of ships, uh, which that, that shows up in, uh, in some of the Moses story, which I'll, I talk about, I go into a little bit of detail there, but um, uh, sorry, where was I going with this? The, um, oh, oh yeah, so, so Enoch is taken up uh, by, by the Ruach and, and disappears essentially, and he's never seen again. Um, now, He's not the only one that that happens to. Uh, Elijah is uh, a prophet who lived um, at least a thousand years after Enoch, and um, during the the time of the Babylonian captivity uh, in uh, roughly 600 BC. And now you have Elijah, um, who is again he's a prophet. So what is a prophet? He's a guy who talks, uh, who tells people words that he uh, he claims he's gotten from god so elijah doesn't specifically um well actually does he let me just check here does elijah have ufo encounters oh he does so so i actually talk about elijah's ufo encounters uh in five uh, three different places in the book and that shows up in 
the Bible references of First Kings chapter 19, 2 Kings chapter 2, and even in Matthew chapter 17, they talk about Elijah um, and his, his UFO encounter. Um, the details of, of that are escaping me at the moment, but what I do know is that Elijah, um, well, maybe it's just that in the way he was taken. So Elijah had already been in contact with someone who was giving him messages to, to tell the, the public and also a lot of times to tell the king uh, or, you know, the priests or whatever. Um, so he was kind of a mucky muck and he knew all the important people. Um, and he seemed to be getting these messages that they sometimes listened to. So they weren't just like, oh, this guy's an idiot from, you know, <laughs> like, why would they listen to him? Uh, he's got a good reputation. Um, and when he basically is ready to retire, what happens? The cherubim or the, the chariot comes from the sky. And he, this is an interesting one because this, this one uh, uses the word ruach. Uh, but it also describes how he is literally taken up. Like you can almost like, the way the, the story is told, you can almost see him just like levitating up into this chariot. Um, so that's about as uh, UFO abduction as you can get. Um, and then it happens again. It happens to Isaiah uh, and to Ezekiel. Now, And those guys are, uh, so Elijah is taken and never returned, similar to Enoch. Uh, but Ezekiel and Isaiah are taken up in the same manner, described very similarly to this tractor beam kind of thing, pulling them up into a craft. And then they're taken somewhere else. Uh, they're shown something, they do some stuff, and then they come back. Today's version of CE5 is based on Dr. Greer's work, or Close Encounters yeah. 5. And that's right. basically, you know, people going out and meditating and trying to contact UFOs or initiating mm -hmm. contact. So you are seeing that as well in the Bible? Well, that's kind of a fundamental practice of Christianity. Uh, we're supposed to pray every day. Well, what is praying? It's um, going into a meditative state. If, you know, I mean, not always, but uh, if you want your prayers to be answered, you should be in a meditative state. <laughs> um and so there's a lot of discipline around that. Um, there are there are people who um, have essentially devoted their entire lives to nothing but praying. Um, maybe they'll do a little bit of gardening here and there, but their main focus is is that of this uh, discipled um, prayer life. And these people are called monks and nuns, and there's millions of them. And there have been for thousands of years. And it's very mainstream. Like it's about as mainstream as you get, right? Mm -hmm. um, so is, is, C, is CE5 a mainstream Christian tradition? Uh, you're darn right it is. Mm -hmm. do, what do we expect? Is it maybe a different question? Right. Um, but, and then another question on top of that is, well, what results do we get? And sadly, most of the time, the results are nil. Um, but I am a believer that 
um, sometimes they are not nil. Um, I've actually seen healings occur um, and some other really weird things that I can't explain in any other way other than some kind of spiritual entity is listening, knows what we're up to, cares about us, and help, wants to help us out. What do you think about talking in tongues? I've done it. Um, I've experienced it, uh, but I do not understand it. And that's kind of the point. Um, although there's, you know, there's, there's debate about that uh, because some people interpret it as um, like in the book of Acts, uh, depending on how, how um, literally you read the book of Acts, um, you can make a good case that uh, the, dis the apostles or the disciples who were there were literally speaking a different language um, and the other people there were able to understand them. And I mean, that's basically literally what it says in Acts chapter five. Um, could that be interpreted a slightly different way? I think there's room for interpret interpretation around that. So I think it's possible that, uh, like some people think um, speaking in tongues is like the, the language of angels, let's say. Um, I don't think that it's really either of those, uh, but either of them work in terms of that story uh, for, for Acts, that if, if you're speaking in the, let, let's say somebody walks into your church uh, who doesn't speak any English. They're, they're fresh off the boat from wherever, and suddenly you speak in their language and you're interpreting what the pastor is saying in his sermon, and they're able to get the message. So that's kind of how the Book of Acts story is presented, um, but it also works if it's some kind of uh, spiritual or heavenly language or, or language of angels or whatever they're calling it. Um, I think that, that that concept still works because uh, the pastor is saying a thing you're saying something that is somehow communicated to this other person. So rather than it simply being you um, experiencing some superpower, uh, both you and the person hearing it are experiencing this superpower in terms of, you know, communicating some strange way. Maybe it's just a psychic phenomenon. Ken, I need to switch gears with you. Where can we find your book, UFOs in the Bible, as well as your other books? I'm glad you asked. So uh, my books are on Amazon. Um, so if you go into Amazon and you search for my name, that's one way of finding all my books. Uh, the other way you could go is go, go to my website, which is dimensionfold.com. Um, and you're going to see... Uh, maybe not immediately. Basically, that is my publishing company website. So it's got my stuff and the other stuff that I publish for other people. Uh, but I'm definitely in there and it shouldn't be too hard to find me. Um, so, yeah, um, I have uh, I have this book on the Bible, UFOs on the Bible. I have a book on magic in the Bible. I have a book on the Sumerian mythology of the Enuma Elish. 
Um, and if you're into that, I have, I'm working on a second uh, follow-up to that on the Atrahasis epic. Um, and I'm also currently writing a book uh, on more of the scientific uh, kind of side of the of ufology and it's called fermi's paradox is bull hmm. uh so <laughs> that'll be out in the next month or two after watching this podcast people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions are you open to that i'm open to that um i'm not open to people just telling me if i you know that's that's bs or whatever I mean, feel free to tell me that if you feel you have to get it off your chest and I'm the only one who's going to listen, but I might not reply back. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm open to discussion. Um, for a while there, I was even inviting people onto my YouTube channel to talk about stuff. Um, I'm taking a little bit of a break from that uh, just because I got to focus on some finishing up some other projects. Um, but uh Yeah. Um, certainly, uh, there is a contact page on my Dimensionful uh, website. Uh, feel free to reach out. And I would especially love to hear uh, from people, from other authors who, uh, who maybe have books on the subject of UFOs or any kind of um, all this other weird stuff that we're talking about. I would love to talk to you guys about that. Um, if anybody is an author that needs a publisher, uh, we should chat and um, yeah, it, I, I, I hope I do hear from uh, some listeners. Before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I, I might not be the right guy to give you a positive <laughs> message, but no, I think that, you know, no matter what, um, no matter what you believe and, uh, and, and kind of, what your take is on all of these strange things that are, that seem to be happening around us and, and have been doing so for a long, long time. Um, however you can understand that in a way that makes sense to you, I think is, uh, is very valuable. Um, so I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from, you know, uh, even like standard religion or, or any kind of interpretations. Um, I just want to explore what might be true. And so I'm not, I'm not even saying that I believe any of the things that I write. I'm saying, what if, right? Does this work? And if I think if we can find multiple ways of understanding phenomena um, that, that, that are internally cohesive, um, I think that that only uh, can strengthen our understanding of the world around us. And, and I actually don't think that you should believe one way or the other. I think you should investigate um, many different ways of believing. And uh, that's, that's true in terms of ufology. And that's also true in terms of, of religion. Um, you know, check out Taoism, check out Buddhism, check out Hinduism, talk to people. Um, I have uh, recently made some friends who are very knowledgeable about Hinduism and really enlightened me in terms of, you know, what I thought I knew about Hinduism. And I was pretty far off. Um, so, yeah, the same is true of politics. You know, we think we know what's what. No, we don't know. 
So I guess that would be my my positive thing is we don't know the answer. Maybe there isn't an answer, but it's fun to explore. Ken, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.